0: Let's get on uh, into week eight now of Jesus is greater. And and I don't want to sound like a broken record of keep repeating where we've been and where the author of Hebrews has has taken us from and to. uh, But the author does this on purpose, that he's just continually building upon uh, their own thoughts to help us realize how great Jesus is. And so again, Jesus The the Old Testament isn't just some arbitrary uh, piece of literature that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And Jesus even says this, and I've read this now, this is the eighth week I've read this, that he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. And in Luke uh, 24, 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Because at this point, there was no New Testament. It was all the Old Testament. He's saying, it's all about me, and then this language of holding fast. Let's not, let's not go back to the old way of doing things. Let's, let's hold fast to Christ. Let's hold back to the actual present that is opened on that Christmas day. Let's not go back and play with the box. Uh, let's look at Christ. And so this week, though, we're going to be looking at our gentle and empathetic high priest. And so we're going to dig into this in Hebrews chapter 4 14 through chapter 5, verses 10, through sorry, through verse 10. Um, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. That'll all be up on the screen, but if you want to follow along, feel free to to do so in Hebrews chapter 4, starting verse 14. So the first word, if you had to guess, if you haven't looked, any guesses of what the first word is in chapter 4, verse 14? Therefore, all right. Did you cheat? No, I know you didn't. You're not a cheater. Therefore, right? The the author of Hebrews has done this. I should have counted. I haven't counted, but it's this has got to be the seventh or eighth time in four chapters that this word therefore has popped up. What is it therefore? Okay, so again, don't want to sound like a broken record because every week we get to add to this list of Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets. You have heard in many ways in various places of this, but now it's Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels. Angels had this really high standing within the Jewish community. So Jesus is greater. Jesus is gospel. And the freedom that we have in Christ is greater than Old Testament law and live this Specific way, and to be part of this community of believers. Now we live a certain way through the power and the freedom that we get in Christ to remain in the covenant. Jesus, one hundred percent human, one hundred percent God. Vital for Him to be able to forgive us for our sins, but also die for our sins. Jesus is greater than the situation. Old Testament prophets wrote about that. How many times in in the in the book of Hebrews so far, just in four short chapters, have we seen? 20 30 quotations from the old testament that when these old testament prophets and, and kings wrote things, they had no idea that this was going to be something greater than what they were writing about. That it all points to Jesus. We looked a couple weeks ago at Jesus being greater than Moses, and Moses was superior to the angels, so Jesus is superior to Moses. Uh, when, when Paul uh, preached a couple of weeks ago, loving Jesus is greater than what previous generations were offered, that we now have Christ. And then last week, looking at Jesus is greater than rest. That is maybe what we might uh, think of as rest. There's nothing wrong with rest. We ought to rest our, our bodies and our souls and our minds. But that's not the point. Jesus is saying, I am the rest. I want to rest your souls. That you don't have to work for salvation. Because I already did it. I finished that. So this week, though, looking at Jesus as our gentle and empathetic high priest. So we're just going to kind of look at, uh, several different points taken from the text here of Jesus, our high priest. So starting off in verse 14, it says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest. And so I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about the high priest. This this week's a little, little odd because the, the author of Hebrews is kind of throwing out some ideas, but he's they're, they're going to really expand on these uh, ideas in a couple of weeks. Uh, and so we're talking about different priest lines, and then also the high priest. So I want to get into this, but I, my, my big question today that I really want to answer is, why is it, what makes Jesus my high priest? What, what is it And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here, building here, right? He's greater, he's greater, he's greater. Now he introduces this high priest thing, but what makes him able to be my high priest? So what is a high priest? A high priest was an individual uh, in the Old Testament specifically up until 70 AD um, that was selected by God, uh, that they oversaw uh, the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle as it traveled around in the wilderness. Uh, They were in charge of performing sacrifices and overseeing other priests perform their sacrifices. Um, But the main thing, the one thing that really made that individual stand out uh, is the idea of being able to um, uh, go in on the Day of Atonement into this place called the Holy of Holies. And so when we look at the temple, and I'm not, I am not—I don't have a diagram of the temple or anything like that, but we look at the temple, that one-third of the space, realistically, there's a couple of storage units off to the side, but they had this huge area that was called the Holy Place, but then there was a holy of holies, the most holy place. That was the size, It was like a cube. Now it was one third of the size. And, but what's crazy is that this entire space was devoted to the Ark of the Covenant and a couple other random little things that were in there. And I'm not going to really get into all of it. But only one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, or maybe what you've heard of as Yom, Yom Kippur, that on this day, the high priest would go in there just for a few minutes and would go in there and would sprinkle some blood and would, and would pray and light some incense to, to atone for the sins of Israel. That that priest would go in there, and these were sins of ignorance. These were sins of the camp, and the Israelites didn't even realize they were doing, not blatantly in God's face, God, I hate you, I'm going to disrespect you, I'm going to do this thing. But no, like these are things, like I didn't even realize I was doing this stuff wrong. But there was even a caveat, there's a whole day dedicated to the removal of sins. And so that's what this priest would do. That's what the high priest would do. He would go in and there was this, this kind of smoke. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. That would kind of hover over the Ark of the Covenant. And the priest would interact with this representation of who God is as he would sprinkle blood on behalf of the people. He intercedes and he expiates. They remove the sins of the camp of the Israelites out uh, and if you and if you will he, he mediates on behalf of the camp he intercedes on behalf of all the Israelites uh, just this past week um, uh, Paul brought up uh, job chapter nine I think it was in uh, the, the systematic theology class that we teach uh, but it was this idea of job is crying out now he's in he's angry he's really mad with God and he says if only if only there was someone, who could be an arbiter between God and me. If only there was somebody who could put their hand on my shoulder and put their hand on God's shoulder and bring us together. That is exactly what the high priest does. And that's what Jesus does. That's who Jesus is, that he is that mediator. He he is that arbiter between God and me, between all of humanity and God. But he's not just a high priest He is our empathetic high priest. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, what stands out between Jesus being our high priest and a natural born human high priest is that when he wins the victory, that after he dies and is raised again from the dead, he ascends into heaven. He looks over all the Earth and says, "This is my kingdom." but then what does he do? He seat, seat, sits down at the right hand of God in position of power and authority, and he immediately gets to work on our behalf. that he ascends he's raised that, he ascends into heaven and he gets to work and he says, "I now get to mediate." I get to go to a God, my Father, who is perfect and holy, who cannot stand the sight of sin, and I get to look down at Brian or whoever it may be, and I get to say, yeah, he hasn't sinned either because he's wearing my righteousness. That he works, immediately gets to work, interceding for us, standing in our place. So the author of the Hebrews is going to kind of beg this question, how is it that he can do this? What is unique about Jesus Yep, he's God. Yep, he's man. Yep, he's greater than Moses. He's greater than the angel. But there's something else going on here that the author is going to try to get to. All right, so he ascends into heaven. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we possess. All right, let's not go back. Let's not go back to law. Let's not go back to the old way of living. Let's hold fast to the freedom and the grace that we have in Christ that we get to profess Jesus why? Again, the author of the Hebrews now is going to answer the question, why should we do that? Why should we hold fast? Oh, sorry, I didn't click the slide here. Why? Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. I explained this a couple of weeks ago, this idea of temptation. So I want to spend a lot of time talking about this, because we, we did look at this a couple of weeks ago, but this idea of, of Jesus being tempted, and the question always comes up, was he actually tempted? I mean, he's fully God. Could he, could he fully be tempted the way that, that I am tempted? The answer is yes, even more so. And the analogy that I've given uh, many times, the idea of, of lifting weights, that if I'm trying to work on lift the weights and I can't quite lift it and it crushes me, and then I get somebody else to come in there and they actually are able to pump it out, right? They're able to actually lift the weight The the question is, who actually fully understands how heavy that thing is? It's the person who can actually lift it. And so even though I've sinned millions of times, I can look to this and I can look at this and I can say, how many of those millions of times was I crushed by the weight that I gave in? And Jesus did not sin that he was fully tempted. The same temptations that I have, the same temptations that you have, whether that's with my thoughts, whether that's with my actions, with my body, whatever. He was also tempted because he was human, but he never gave in to the flesh. He never sinned. I have a little, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, something in the back of my mind. uh, I guess last week when I was preaching, I got home and Angela said, Henry was like, daddy needs to calm down. So not like, Every time I get animated, I'm like, okay, all right. It's like, well, it's got, you know, there's a name for that, but now it's just there. You can hear Henry. Daddy needs to calm down. You need to calm down, Henry. Um, okay, so he's tempted. Okay, but I want to go back. Okay, he's tempted like we are, but because he was tempted like we are without sin, go, go back to that verse 15. We don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. What is empathy? There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Uh, Brene Brown, if you're familiar with her, she uh, I don't know what what book, she's written a lot of different books, but she's written a lot about this idea of empathy and sympathy and listening to people. Uh, But she has this, this phrase that I found, the two most powerful words when we're in struggle, me too. And this isn't to belittle what somebody's struggling with, right? This isn't to say, oh, you're doing that? Well, yeah, so have I. Get over it. That's not what empathy is, right? And so she kind of shares this story that sympathy is if you're walking along and you see somebody in a dark hole. could be someone you love, somebody you know, could be somebody you don't know. But you're walking along and you see somebody in a dark hole. Sympathy looks into the dark hole and says, hey, how you doing down there? Can I get you anything? Do you need anything? Can I, can I help in any way? That's sympathy. Empathy is the person who actually crawls down into that hole with that person, puts their arm around them and says, I get it. That is what Jesus is now able to do. That Jesus crawls into our dark hole of temptation and sin and despair and says, I get it. Right? And there's obviously a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is not a bad thing. right? Sympathy is actually a good thing. If if my wife, she's going to, you know, in the next month here or so, she's going to go into labor. And then while she's on the delivery bed, if I, gave, if I go, babe, I get it. I get pain. That's <laughs> not going to end well. Right? I don't have a, I don't, I'm not allowed to speak in to that kind of pain. I don't understand. I can sympathize. <laughs> All right, hey, how you doing down there? Is there anything I can get you? You need a sandwich, right? He said, no, I don't want a sandwich. Get out of my face, right? That's, that's sympathy. Empathy, though, is, man, I, that's what Jesus did. He crawls into that hole with us. And so he is now able to empathize with our weaknesses. And so because of that, because of Jesus, this mediator, who's not just there mediating because he's God, he's mediating because he's God and man, and gets it. He sees us. He hears us. He knows our struggles. He knows our suffering. Because of that, verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That when we're tempted, when we're struggling, when we're suffering, we now get to boldly approach God's throne. We get to go to the throne of grace with confidence. This hasn't always been the case. Then we can look at the likes of Jacob and Moses and Amos and Isaiah and others who got a glimpse of God. Moses sees the afterburners of where God once was. And all these individuals who see some kind of smoky cloud, and what does every single one of them do? They fall on their face as if they were dead. That's always the descriptor of somebody who sees or thinks they see God. They fall on their face as dead. That God cannot stand to be in the presence of sin. That this was just some artwork that I found of Isaiah as he sees these cherubim, right, who are just saying God is holy and the whole earth is full of his glory and you can't even see him behind this smoke. This smoke is here to protect you because if you look at him, you're going to die. The author of Hebrews here is saying, we don't have to do that anymore. This side of the cross, this scene is now beautiful and grace-filled, not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that Jesus already did. We now have that arbiter in Jesus. And so now we can boldly, confidently approach God's throne of grace. There's no more wrath and judgment because we've Bit in the face of God. It's because Jesus' face was spat on that now we get to go into the throne room with confidence. One of my favorite quotes uh, from Tim Keller is this, and it captures this idea. The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. And I don't get mad at my kid when he wakes up in the middle of the night when he needs something. And I might be tired, but I don't get mad at that kid. But that's only kid, right? We have that kind of access, that we get to boldly go to the throne of grace and ask for help and mercy in a time of need. Not only is our high priest empathetic, but he's also gentle. And so while these next verses are actually going to be describing a, a human priest, or pastor, fill in the blank. It's also describing what it is that Jesus encompasses in this position. Starting in verse five, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to other gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to, to weakness, I want to go back to that word gently because it's a, it's a bigger word than, than what we're able to translate into English. And, and every commentary I read this week was like, this is, this is a good word. Gently is a good word, it's, but it's kind of an untranslatable word. Uh, and, and it's one word, I mean, I took, I took, I don't remember how many credits of Greek. This is definitely not a Greek word that's in my, uh, my, my Rolodex of vocabulary. Um, but it's metropathia. I know I'm not saying that right, but, you know, the nice thing about Greek is that nobody knows how to say it right, so you can just, you know, go along with it. But it's this word that says there's a midpoint, literally, that there's some midpoint between two extremes, okay, so you can have extravagant grief, but then um, utter indifference, okay, extravagant, extravagant grief and utter indifference, it's saying there's got to be something in the middle, right, there's a right way. There's a third way, right? It could be explosive anger and extreme laziness, but really what this word is talking about within the context is that Jesus or this priest is able to put up with people without getting irritated, right? They don't get angry with people's faults, but they also don't condone their behavior. There's a a middle way. There's a third way without going extreme, and that's how they're able to deal properly to love us, care for us, be strong yet meek. I always remember thinking back in, in college, I, I don't remember uh, why we did this, uh, but I remember uh, we used to always have to move a piano, a grand piano, uh, from on the floor up to the, up to the stage. And there was no way to do that other than just manpower. And so every day after chapel, the, you know, our, our, the choir director, whoever it was, would get up and say, hey, I need the football team to move the piano. Uh, and so as a football players, we're like ultimate strength. <laughs> I don't know. That's just what it was. So we, we would go and we would all just surround the piano and we, would, and we would lift it up together. But what I realized in that is there were some guys who can lift a lot of weight. They might even be able to lift, you know, get, get a leg off on a piano, but they would slam it back down. You, weren't, you can't do that with a piano. Or right? the piano, you got to lift it, but you got to gently set it back down because if you slam it down, it's going to put everything all out of whack, out of tune. And so the whole idea was, we're going to lift this. We're going to have collective strength, but this meekness and gentleness collectively together to put this back on the stage. That's this idea. That's not just gentle, but that's in between this idea of strength and meekness and gentle. There's a third way, and that's that's what Christ is, and that's even humanly how we should conduct ourselves with one another. So again, every high priest is selected from among the people. They're chosen. And is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weaknesses. This is why. He has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, right? But this is where now things start to defer from a normal high priest to Jesus. Jesus doesn't have to offer sacrifice for his own sins. He takes the sins of the world on himself, that he is the sacrifice. He is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, as well as for the sins of people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. There's nothing glorious about this position. It should be one of humility uh, and meekness. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He doesn't say, hey, look at me. I'm now this high priest. I want to do whatever I want to do, which is exactly what Aaron does. And I want to talk a lot about Aaron, but Aaron was Moses's brother. He was the first high priest. And as he's offered this position, within weeks, he completely destroys it. He completely misses what he's supposed to be doing. It'd be like being a being a CEO. What he does basically is that that God says, "Don't have any other gods. You know, only worship me." And Aaron's like, "Hey, let's get all of our gold. Let's make a let's make a false idol. Let's make an image that we can worship." It'd be like a CEO. Someone a board appoints someone to be a CEO of a company, and they go within a couple of weeks say, "Hey, you know, all of our funds, we're gonna go and give it to our competitors. That's what we're gonna do, right?" And the board's like, "Whoa, what are you doing?" Right? That's exactly what happens to Aaron. So I don't want to talk a lot about Aaron's priesthood. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. Um, and so I just want to bring that up though for right now. So Jesus is our high priest. He is uh, an empathetic high priest. He's a gentle high priest, but he's also our high priest from God. Even going back from high the verse, chapter, sorry, chapter five, verse one, that every high priest is selected from among the people in the same way. Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming high priest. Right? He's saying, it's not about me. It's about God the Father. But God said to him, you are my son, and today I have become your father. And again, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 7. He's done this multiple times. And again, the author of Hebrews is saying, you've memorized these scriptures. You know this to be true. But this is about Jesus. This is about the Messiah. This is about the anointed one. He says in another place, you are a priest forever." in the order of Melchizedek. And as much as I I love Melchizedek and I really want to dig into this, not yet, okay? We're going to get there um, in two weeks as we look at chapter seven, specifically uh, at this character of Melchizedek, one of my favorite characters. That guy has changed my view of the Old Testament. Um, And so I get pretty excited about Melchizedek, but not today. I want to, but we're not going to get there today. So moving on, oh, it says this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Right? So you, you read this and, and the author of Hebrews here is gonna bring up when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane where he's praying. We're gonna, I'm gonna read that here, that narrative in just a minute. But what, is, what does the author say here? It says, he, he fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard. But wait, didn't Jesus die? Yes, for a moment, and then was raised from the dead. Why? Here's the why. Here's the ultimate why. Because of his reverent submission. So let's look at this narrative. Looking, reading from Matthew. This is also recorded in Mark. Uh, Matthew says this, chapter 26. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. This is the night he's gonna be betrayed. This is, he's going to die in less than 24 hours on a cross. And he said to them, his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. As an Old Testament uh, uh, image of a cup of wrath of the grapes being tread on by God and the juices overflowing, it's wrathful. He says, remove this cup from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you keep watch with me for an hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away and prayed once, prayed again a third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of, of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Jesus is in agony over not just his impending death, but what it represents that he's going to absorb the wrath of God for the people that are even about to put him in handcuffs. He submits to God's will. And what I want to try to do here in our remaining moments is answer the question, why? Why does Jesus submit? Why does Jesus obey? He's also God. He was also there in, in eternity past in the Trinity as they agreed that this is what they were going to do, that they were going to make humanity in, in their image, but they were going to spit in God's face. And Jesus said, but I'll take on flesh as your image, as your image, perfect image to our image bears. They're going to spit in my face but I'm going to die for their sins. And he willingly submits and then he obeys fully, completely. Why? Why does he need to do this? Well, the last point here is Jesus, our obedient high priest. Son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So I want to focus on those two verses. We have this idea of perfection. He, be, he was made perfect. And, and I think in our context, in our language, we hear perfect. And we also then say, well, then there must be something imperfect about God. That's not the case. Let's just think about this in context. Son, though he was, he all was already the son of God. He was already anointed one. He already was the Messiah. He learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect or was made complete, would be a better word. And he became the source of our eternal salvation for all. Let me illustrate it this way Think of it as if there's two sons. Or two different sons. There's two two dads, two wealthy dads. They're CEOs of major Fortune 500 companies. The one dad says, son, I want you to take over the business someday. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the penthouse. I'm going to give you the trust fund. I'm going to give you the pension. Everything's taken care of. You don't have to worry about one thing. I just want you to sit up there and just, you know, sign some papers, sign some documents, do the thing. I I just want you to do that. The other CEO, who is just as wealthy, just as powerful within his company, goes to his son and says, You're going to the ground floor. I want you to start at the bottom of this thing. Why? Because the, the son who's just handed everything, the keys to the kingdom, if you will, when push comes to shove, when layoffs have to be made, you think he cares who, gets, who loses their job? Not at all. He's only concerned about himself and making his money, and retaining what he is, and who he is. But the other son learns obedience through suffering. They start on the ground floor. They learn the ins and the outs of the business. They start in shipping and receiving, and maybe move up to sales and bookkeeping and management. He knows what it's like to be the little guy. And so when layoffs do inevitably happen, he looks at, at Jim from shipping and receiving and says, Jim's got two kids at home. He can't, he can't, he can't lay Jim off. He looks at Susan in management and says, no, 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 She's, she just got married. Her husband's on disability. We, she cannot lose her job. And so this son then says, how about all of my salary and everything that I have, all the gifts and the pension funds and all this stuff, just give it to them, give it to the people. They matter more than I do. And it's in that moment that that son is made complete, is made perfect, attains full sonship. How? Because now the son gets it. Now that son can empathize. Now that son can go by somebody who, who just grinds it out nine to five and can say, I get it. I've been there. It's only through that experience of even pain and grief that the son suffered the same pain and grief that the father experienced that unhappy and mutiny-filled employees. That the father now says, now you, son, have experienced this company. And in our context of this passage, the son, Jesus Christ, has now experienced the world. Turn on you as they turned on me. And Jesus, now you have become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. The author of Hebrews already made that very clear. What does it mean to obey? This isn't something I gotta do. It's something that's been given to me. That this idea of believe, just believe, hold fast to the finished work of Jesus Why is it that he can intercede for me as a high priest? Because he knows what it's like to be tempted and he wins time after time. And it's through his suffering, it's through his obedience that now he can stand in between. He can put his hand on God, his father, and he can put his hand on my shoulder and he can mediate and save and bring us together. It's only through his suffering. So in conclusion, gospel application. I hope this sounds like a broken record. That's the second time I've said broken record. I don't know if I've ever even seen a broken record. Uh, But you know what I mean. We can't pay for our own sins. We can't do it. Only our great high priest can do that. Only Jesus can pay for my sins. But I think in application, if we could step away with anything this morning, it would be this. This reality that Jesus is my high priest, that he suffered and died on my behalf, that reality enables me to empathize and be gentle with those with whom it is hard for me to love. The individual that I know that maybe I don't even really like. And I see them in that dark hole because there was a time that I was an enemy of God, that I was a sinner and Jesus crawled into that dark hole with me so, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to have flesh. I know what it's like to be tempted. Now, the problem with this kind of a sermon is that you could walk out of here just saying, This is kind of a grace filled legalism. I want you to be nice to people. I want you to empathize with people. I-, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Go do it. That's legalism. That's law. That's not the gospel. What the gospel says is there's a third way. There's a metropathia. There's something else. So when God says, love your neighbor or empathize with those who are in that hole, he's not saying just do it. That's law. That's legalism. You will always fall short of that, always. But we also can't just say, yeah, he couldn't have meant that person. He could not have meant that neighbor because that neighbor is a jerk. That's legalism, or that's license, excuse me. There's a gospel way. There's a gospel that says, I can't do this with everybody perfectly, but you know who can? Jesus. Jesus can, and because now his spirit indwells in me, he enables me to empathize in a way that I didn't even know was possible. He enables me to love people that I would look at and say they're unlovely because I am unlovely and Jesus still died for me. I can't do this, but Jesus sure can. And he did. So now I get to. In just a few moments, as always, we're going to take communion. If you weren't able to grab the elements, feel free to go out in the lobby and grab some. Nothing magical about these elements. Nothing magical about a a little coffee creamer cup filled with juice and a really stale wafer. Nothing magical about this. These elements don't take away my sins. They simply enable me to remember my mediator, to remember my high priest who suffered and bled and died obediently to his father so that we might have everlasting life. We get to remember the body, which is represented by some cracker or wafer for the body of Christ that was broken for me, the juice that represents the blood of Christ, that wrath, that grape juice that was spilled out of wrath that Jesus absorbs, that he drinks that cup of wrath so that we can drink some grape juice that represents his blood. That's what communion is. And so if you're in here or even at home, you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. We just ask that you're a follower of Jesus. Do you look to our great high priest in this fashion, that he was tempted like us yet without sin? And that's what enables him to die for my sins. Let me pray. Let me pray as we enter into time of communion, reflection, and as we sing a few songs in, in conclusion. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. And I don't want to, just on the way here this morning, I, God, you, I think it was just your sovereignty, not on the radio, just hearing about prayer, that sometimes we use prayer as a as a transition time. I don't want this to be that, God, that because of what your son did, I can boldly go to your throne. I get to do right now in this moment, do something that millions, if not billions of individuals have wanted to do for a very long time, but because of the finished work of your son, and now that I have a mediator who has given me his righteousness and taken my sin upon himself, I can look you, God, my father in the face and ask for grace to help in a time of need to thank you and praise you for the finished work of your Son, to thank you and praise you for your Spirit that enables me to live a gospel-centered life, a gospel-infused life that isn't trying to please you because we need a better standing or isn't trying to please ourselves within licentiousness, that we get to live a grace-filled life that glorifies you and your Son and the Spirit. So God, I pray as we partake of these elements that we would remember who you are, We remember your son. Remember that he is our mediator, our high priest who stands in on our behalf. And it's in his most glorious and precious name of Jesus that I am able to even talk to a holy God. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.